0: In 1976, world-class singer, and songwriter, and musician Stevie Wonder released what was his best-selling and most critically acclaimed album of his career, what many consider one of the greatest music albums of all time, Songs in the Key of Life. Perhaps you've listened to the album, or you have the album. Maybe some of your favorite Stevie songs are on that album. Isn't she lovely? Knocks me off my feet. Love's in need of love today. Sir Duke, I wish as, I mean, the hits go on and on and on. As many noteworthy hits as the album contained, what I think is also noteworthy and impressive is the thoughtfulness and intentionality of the album's title, Songs in the Key of Life. This idea that music should match the melody of life, the tune of life, that the circumstances and emotions and feelings of life determine a certain mood of music that's appropriate to those circumstances and those feelings. I wonder what songs match the key of your life. Listening to contemporary Christian music stations, life must be great all the time for all God's people. I mean, one of the more popular Christian stations in our area is named Praise 104.1. I mean, what other expression could be possible for pious people? That sentiment seems to be shared across many churches where praise teams pump out songs seemingly only intended to pump people up. There's no room for somberness, only celebration. I don't mean to be overly critical, but want us to be overtly careful All right. of the picture we paint of life with our music. That's why if you've noticed, this morning and over the last few weeks, we haven't had many, if any, fast or up-tempo songs on our Sunday mornings. Rather, they've been intentionally slow. More reflective. Many sung in the minor keys. They've been songs about affliction mm-hmm. and grief and brokenness and feeling like your faith is going to fail. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes life isn't celebratory. All right. Sometimes life sucks. Mm-hmm. And we mean for our music to match all of life's experiences. So what key, what tune, what note seems to be set for your life this morning? If your life is down in the pits, I trust this morning's passage will be fit for you. If your life is up in the clouds, then I trust that this morning's passage will help you to empathize with others and speak to them. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to this morning's passage in Job chapter three? Job chapter three. Job is right near the middle of the Bible, right before the book of Psalms. If you're using one of the Bibles under your chairs, you can find it on page 418. And as a reminder, if you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily read or understand, feel free to take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. We want you to have your own copy of God's Word to read, study, understand, and apply. Job chapter 3. We're going to read the entire chapter, and then after that, all I'm going to do is try to explain the chapter all right, and to apply the chapter. All right, so we won't do any kind of Magic tricks with the text. We're going to say what the text says and try to apply it to our lives. That's what faithful preaching is we trust. Job chapter 3. We read, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. Darkness. God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let let thick, thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those cursed who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb. Nor hide trouble for my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come out of the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breast that I should nurse But then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. Or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why? Why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling. There the weary are at rest there the prisoners are at ease together they hear not the voice of the taskmaster the small and great are there and the slave is free from his master why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter and soul who long for death but it comes not Mm. and dig for it more than for hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread. And my groanings are poured out like water. But the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest. Trouble comes. If you look at this passage I think you see pretty clearly the structure Verses 1 through 10 contain Curses And verses 11 through 26 contain various Questions about why life is given instead of Death and They all come from a man in deep suffering, in deep Sorrow and crying out in the midst of deep hurt and deep pain. And this is what I think is the main idea of this passage. The, the main point is driving home to us. The sorrows of life produce sorrowful souls, and those sorrows need not be suppressed in silence. But expressed in faith. The sorrows of life produce sorrowful souls. And those sorrows need not be suppressed in silence, but rather expressed in faith. As we walk through this chapter together, we'll hang our thoughts around three. Truths I think we see emerge from this text. Number one, godly people grieve deeply. Mm. We see that in verses one through ten. Point number two, God is not offended by hard questions. Mm. We see that in verses 11 through 19. And number three, you can long for death, but must ultimately entrust your life to the Lord. We see that in verses 20 through 26. The so three truths we see spring up from this text one, godly people grieve deeply. Number two, God is not offended by hard questions. And number three, you can long for death. But you must ultimately entrust your life to the Lord. Point number one, godly people grieve deeply. It's okay to grieve. That's generally the first point I try to make when I preach a funeral sermon. I feel I need to make that point up front because oftentimes it seems like people need permission to express their pain. I mean, especially... When everything and everyone else around them is convincing them of the contrary, the funeral program. It tells them this isn't a funeral, it's a homegoing celebration. The officiant leading the service charges the congregation from the start, this is not a day of mourning. We ain't gonna shed no tears over sister or brother so and so because they wouldn't want us crying because we know they're in a better place. The two minute remarks that turn into 20 minute remarks from friends and loved ones contain countless jokes and funny stories of the one recently departed. They all combine in a well meaning attempt to lighten the mood and provide some levity in an effort to comfort. So that by the time I get up to preach, I feel like part of my job is to tell the widow or widower, to tell the children and grandchildren, to tell the friends and family members and church members, listen, it's okay to grieve. Amen. A death has just occurred and death hurts. It's natural and human to hurt. Yeah. Well, in my passage this morning, we're not at a funeral service, but we might as well be at one. Because brother Job is as near death as one can get. We left off chapter two with Job struck physically by terrible sores, loathsome boils all over his body, suffering greatly with his three friends around him, but the last verse of chapter two telling us that they were sitting with him on the ground in complete silence. No one spoke a word to him for seven days and seven nights, which was typically the mourning period in the ancient Near East for one who just died. Job, to his friends, was as good as dead. But chapter 3, verse 1 tells us that after this, after these seven days of silence specifically, but more broadly, after everything Job had experienced and endured, the loss of all his possessions, the death of all 10 of his children, the terrible physical, physical affliction, after this, Job breaks the silence. Job, we read, opened his mouth and, you guessed it, he cursed. I mean, there comes a point when the cup of endurance runs over. Mm. And men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. That's what Dr. King wrote in his letter from a Birmingham jail. About the plight of blacks in America. They're long-denied justice. How much more appropriate would it seem for Job long denied any reprieve from intense financial and physical and emotional and spiritual suffering? There comes a time when a man reaches his breaking point. This seems to be it for Job. We're witnessing it, it seems. I mean, Satan had promised God in chapter one that if he snatched away all of Job's possessions, Job would curse God to his face. Well the possessions got snatched But instead of cursing Job blessed God So Satan Doubled down in chapter 2 Pledging that if God allowed Job's body To be struck down He then certainly cursed God to his face Well Job's body Was severely struck After which Even Job's wife temporarily Became a tool in Satan's temptation bag And pleaded with Job To Curse God. But Job, again, instead of cursing, God praised him. But his situation didn't improve. His body was still afflicted. And so we've just been waiting, really, for his tolerance to tip over, for his tongue to lash out. I mean, for many of us, we've been expecting chapter three, verse one to come to our minds. Maybe this verse had to come but notice Job does indeed curse here but not God All right. rather the day of his birth now if you've got a super logical mind that thinks in rather linear terms perhaps you're thinking well God made the day of Job's birth so to curse the day of his birth is just another way, a nicer way of saying Job cursed God but be careful here not to let your logic lead you to conclusions That the Bible doesn't make All right. Nowhere in this book Are we told that Job Curses God Job moves close to the line Of doing so but he does not cross it He As God has stated before Still holds fast his integrity And as God Will say at the end of the book Commending Job he says Even with everything that Job says in this book Job spoke Rightly of me. So, what do we have here if not outright sin? Well, we have the raw grief of a man, a godly man in deep agony. And God, in his wisdom, wants us to feel this agony with Job. I mean, notice here how we're not just given the, the narrator's overview of Job's action as part of the progressing story. We're not just told what Job did as the next act following the previous scene. That verse 1 says Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. We're also told what Job said. Verse 2 gives us the the kind of transcripts. Right? It says and Job said. We are meant to look at Job's language and languish with him. In verses 3 through 10, Job says in vivid words what the narrator summed up in verse 1. He curses the day of his birth. I mean, look at all the repeated phrases throughout. Let the day, let that day, let gloom be upon it, and on and on and on. Job is commanding, cursing to that, that day, be cursed. In, Job, in verse 3, Job says, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Job literally curses the day that he came into the world, wishing that that day never came into being, that it never existed. And Job curses the night. Nine months earlier, when his parents slept together and his father's seed fertilized his mother's egg and a child, a son, Job was conceived. Job holds in contempt the entire birth process from the day of conception to his birth day. Let them be damned. Let them perish. Let them be abolished from the history records, from ever happening. Verse four, let that day The day of my birth, let it be darkness and never see light. At the beginning of creation, in Genesis 1, the entire world was in darkness. Until God broke out in creative power, let there be light. Well, Job wants no light of day, no dawn, none of God's creative power to have broken in on the day when he was born. Look at all the references to, to darkness, authority. Verse four, let that day be darkness. Verse five, let gloom and darkness claim it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Verse six, that night, uh, the night of conception, let thick darkness seize it. Verse nine, let the stars of its day be dark. In the second part of verse four, Job wished, that God above never sought the day when he was born. Didn't pay attention to him. Overlooked it. Somehow skipped that day. I wish God had never allowed that day on the calendar nor the night of my conception. And that's what he gets at in verse 6 when he says he wishes that night wouldn't rejoice as existing among the days of the year or among the days of the month. He says in verse 7 let that night be barren Empty, unfruitful. In other words, I wish nothing happened the night my parents came together and I was conceived. I wish my father was sterile. I wish my mother's womb was like stony ground upon which no seed can be fertilized. Again, verse nine, let that night be dark with no hope of light or life. Why? Verse 10, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, didn't close her womb completely from bearing life, and because she bore life, it didn't hide my eyes from trouble. I was born, and that's the problem. Perhaps as you read these opening verses, you're thinking to yourself, you sure Job ain't in here? Because <laughs> he is tripping, right? I never heard no man, no woman, especially no godly man, ever talk like this. Right. Well, it may be that we haven't read our Bibles carefully enough then. Because people in deep agony in the Bible. Godly people talk like this. Let me show you that. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 20. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, I believe it's on page 648. Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah is right after the big book of Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 20. Look at verse 14. Jeremiah was a prophet who lived and ministered During the 7th and 6th centuries BC There's a prophet who experienced Much persecution and suffering During the time of Judah's downfall And listen to what he says in in Jeremiah 20 Starting at verse 14 Cursed Be the day on which I was born The day when my mother bore me Let it not be blessed Cursed be the man Who brought the news to my father a son is born to you Making him very glad Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave in her womb forever grave. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Jeremiah sounds a lot like Job. Using jarring language, vivid language, language cursing the day of his birth. And he's a prophet? (laughs) Yes, just as Job was a blameless, upright, God-fearing man. What we have here is not godlessness, but grief, deep grief expressed by godly people. In Job chapter 3, you can turn back to Job 3. In Job chapter three, we have Job vomiting out the vowness of life as he knew it and not caring who was around or who was flattered on. He was being utterly real and utterly transparent. You know, some of us are so worried about presenting the perfect package the perfect picture of our spirituality, of our Christianity, that we never reach this kind of level. We have
1: real hurts
0: and real pains and real grief, but we keep them bottled up inside. And so we really don't reach any real kind of spiritual maturity. It actually stunts our faith because we keep being fake. What happens is that we end up living a duplicitous kind of double life. One where we have deep turmoil within, but it's constantly masked by a package of smiles and pleasantries and prepackaged religious aphorisms without. And it's slowly killing us. I mean, it's hard to be phony. It takes a lot of effort to keep turning on and off, on and off, on and off putting on a perpetual show of strength and togetherness. It leads us to perhaps inadvertently presenting a picture of a truly spiritually mature Christian life as one that's mess-free. Or even if there is some messiness, there's no means for a true Christian to express it. Perhaps you feel that the best advice you can give your heart is the advice your parents gave you about their home. What goes on in here stays in here. Well, friends, let Job, let the Bible convince you that that's horrible advice. You don't need to keep your feelings and griefs trapped inside. Amen. The Bible affords the opportunity to open up your mouth and simply say what you're feeling without needing to sanitize your suffering. If life feels all negative, the solution isn't just to think positive. It might be that you need to express the negative, the feelings of despair. Maybe even if they come out like Job, desiring that the day of your birth never never occurred because of all the trouble life has brought. Yes, it's incredibly raw and risky, but worse is the opposite of silent despair, storing up a reservoir of rage and harboring built-up bitterness. You can honestly pour out your pain does that mean that you have no faith in God? On the contrary, it can be a sign that you believe in God's power, you believe in God's sovereignty, you believe in God's justice, but you just can't understand or see or experience any of it at present. Amen. Life is not altogether meaningless as if it had no maker over it. Life is just miserable. It's true Christians can experience this and true Christians should express this. Godly people grieve deeply and it's okay to grieve. The second truth I think we see highlighted in this text is that God is not offended by hard questions. Point number two, God is not offended by hard questions. If verses 1 through 10 rub you the wrong way, offend your sensibilities of how godly people should talk, then prepare to be further shocked. Because the rest of the passage doesn't get better, but more bold, more potentially offensive. As Job progresses from cursing the day of his birth and the night of his conception to questioning why he didn't die once, conceived or immediately after birth and notice that the feature of verses 11 through 19 is the question why 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 now Job throughout this chapter isn't directly addressing anyone now, yes his friends are around but his words aren't directly li- directed towards them intentionally at least. And, and yes, the almighty God is around, omnipresent, everywhere, all the time, but, but Job doesn't specifically address him, at least not by name. And yet we know that God is always the audience of our words and our actions, mm-hmm. analyzing them and responding to us accordingly. And amazingly here, Job doesn't catch God's immediate fury as he continues to pour out his pain and interrogate the circumstances of his life, I mean, many of us grew up trained not to ask our parents why, to just accept what they said or did. You were thought to be out of place, out of line if you asked why once, and don't let you keep doing it like Job here. You liable to catch a backhand or commanded to go get yourself a switch. You just don't question your parents. And surely you bet not question God. But God here doesn't give Job the smackdown at the first inquiry. He lets Job pour out why again and again and again. It's why after why after why after Why? Why? Because that's part of the language of laments. Language that God is not offended by. But that God actually authorizes in the Bible. Honest questioning, complaining even to God. Again, you might think Job is, is out on an island in his crazy language here, questioning God but you'd be mistaken if you thought he were alone. If you read through the Psalms time and again, you see the psalmist lamenting over some hurt, some painful situation that they're in and doing what Job here does, questioning God. Psalm chapter 10, verse one, the psalmist asks, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. David asked, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Or Psalm Chapter 44, verses 23 through 24, the choir master asked, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? Again, godly people doing what seems to us, at least at first glance, ungodly things. Questioning God, but given precious space in the Bible, God's Word, to do so as part the process of lamenting. As Mark Virgo puts it in his great little book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, lament is how you live between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. A lament is how you live between the poles, between the markers of a hard life and God's sovereignty. Lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. He goes on to say, honest, humble, pain-filled questions are part of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Here we see from Job some honest, hard pain-filled questions coming out from a soul that is suffering and bring emotions that feel true. Like death being better than life. For Job, that feels like the God to honest truth in the moment. In verses 1 through 10, Job wished the day of his birth never came on the calendar. Here he questions that if that day had to come, then why couldn't he die immediately? And look at verse 11. Oh, why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire? Why couldn't I, if I had to be born, somehow choke on my umbilical cord before they cut it and have suffocate? Why didn't the doctors drop me on my head before placing me in my mother's arms and I could have died instantly? Verse 12, why did the knees receive me or why the breast that I should nurse? In other words, why didn't my mother abandon me at birth? Why didn't she pass me out of her womb but then pass over me? Why didn't she neglect me? Why did she have to put me on her knees and bring me up to her breast to feed me, to nurse me? Why could she not care about me? Verses 13 and 15, because then, if that would have happened, I would have died immediately at birth or shortly thereafter, and I could have some rest now. I could have lain down and been quiet. You see, death for Job, a place in the grave, is a place of peace where no more tragedy or trauma can come upon him. Right, Life, each day, seemed to bring its own Multiply trauma and death, no more of that can haunt me at least. We need to understand that at the time Job is, is writing, was written, there's not a super-developed doctrine of immediate suffering in hell or bliss in heaven for those who die. Now that's progressively revealed and developed throughout the Bible, coming to its clearest expression in the New Testament. But notice here, that Job does not think that death brings extinction. A person still continues to consciously exist. And that existence in Job's mind is better than his existence alive on earth. Death welcomes everybody, Job says. Great kings and counselors and princes in verses 13 and 15. We'll see in verses 18 and 19, prisoners too. The great and small are alike, Job says in verse 19, but, but there's rest in these, there's relief from all this agony. Anything can be better than all this agony. Oh, that I had died so very early in life and been in the grave for all this time to escape all this agony. Job goes on. And he deepens in his sorrow. And he shocks us even more in his language in verse 16 with yet another question. Look there in verse 16, he asks, or, if not die suddenly at birth, even better, why was I not as a hidden stillborn child? As infants who never see the light. Why did I have to come out of my mother's womb at all? Why couldn't my mother's womb have been my coffin instead of cocoon? Why couldn't she have miscarried me in her pregnancy? Why couldn't I have been a stillborn in her womb, and if I had to come out her womb, come out dead on arrival? I'd be dead, and that would be delightful. In the grave, verse 17, he says, where the wicked cease from troubling me. I mean, if I was in the grave. I never saw light. No wicked could trouble me. There'd be no Chaldeans, no Sabians who could come and raid my possessions in Sheol in the place of death. I'd be protected. Again, there will be some rest there. Verse 18, there that the prisoners are at ease. They're no longer oppressed by taskmasters. Everybody is there, small and great, verse 19, and even there the slave is free. Oh, that I would be there so that I would be free. These verses are hard, aren't they? Perhaps especially hard for some of you. Some of you have experienced the crushing feeling of losing a child to miscarriage. You know that feeling of a Positive pregnancy test with its attendant joys and hopes, then having those hopes and joys immediately snatched away. Months later, another positive test and another miscarriage. Another positive test and another miscarriage in what seems like a vicious ongoing cycle. Perhaps some of you have had the experience of a A fully grown child develops in your womb. And that child passes out of your womb and they look fully healthy. Eight pounds, nine ounces with ten fingers and ten toes, but no heartbeat. It's a crushing feeling. And maybe you think that Job is making light of that How is Job even saying these things? He's seemingly making light of the pain, the deep pain that a mother and father feel in those circumstances. Well, Job isn't meaning to make light of your situation. Job is meaning to show how incredibly deep and real his pain is. you've had this kind of hurt but you haven't really had an outlet to ask why you wanted to deeply you've had these questions but but you figured if you talk like this if you ask questions that people would question if you're really a Christian if you're really trusting the Lord with this maybe you think that to yourself so you just stay quiet silence While you suffer My friends don't do that Press this lament Into every area of pain In your life The pain of Desiring marriage and That desire remaining unfulfilled The pain of There being no real prospects For that desire to ever be filled I mean you're a member at Temple Hills Baptist Church and let's be real about it, we are a small church and there are not many prospects here. You go online and the prospects grow even dimmer as the weird strangers multiply. And so in real moments you have this incredible pain. Maybe this constant pain is you're gonna live the rest of your life alone. That you will have no children. You have to live the rest of your life in celibacy. Not having the companionship of a husband or wife, not having the fellowship, always showing up at functions with just you and no plus one. It brings deep Pain and you feel you need to sit on your pain in order to remain pious. If you open up your mouth, what might pour out are words that cause others to question your walk with the Lord. Sisters, stay strong in your singleness. Maybe you're in the midst of a painful marriage. It's been sour for years and you're convinced the other person's love for you is not genuine. That their behavior is only intentionally hurtful. You you want to stay in the marriage, I mean, there's not really grounds to leave, but you feel like you're dying on the limb in it. You feel trapped with no way out even as your heart feels more and more wounded. Because you feel there's no way out, in your pain you keep quiet, suffering in silence. That's what Job did for a short time. But you cannot live life like that for a long time. You've got to learn to do what Job and the psalmist come to do in deep pain. Laments. Give your pain and grief to God. Ask him boldly, why? How long? When will it end? God is not offended by those questions. They don't show a resignation from religion or a resignation to one's fate. Rather, they are a mark of real religion. One that fights and claws to understand God and his ways. Faith asks hard questions. Because a true faith believes in a God who is ever present and who hears and who is in complete control. Amen. Perhaps over the next few weeks, you need to study some of the Psalms of Lament. Write them down in a journal. Memorize Psalms of Lament and pray through them. Come back this evening at our prayer service. We're going to try to stumble our way through praying together. A psalm of lament Lament Is something we must Learn if we want to live With pain while trusting In God's sovereign power God is not Offended by our questions It's often they're indicators Of our quest to grow Closer to him Third and lastly in this text we learn That you can long For death But Ultimately, must entrust your life to the Lord. You can long for death, but ultimately you must entrust your life to the Lord. And Job continues asking questions in verse 20, asking why. He asked in verse 20, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter and soul who long for death, but it comes not and dig for it more than for hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Job has gone from cursing the day of his birth, wishing it never came, to asking why he didn't die immediately at birth or in his mother's womb, to now asking, since none of those things happened, why is life continually given day after day when I so desperately want to die? Listen to those words in verse 20 Job says He longs For death Deeply desires it But notice As desperately as Job longs for death He knows that he cannot He must not Take his own life Suicide is not an option He can't End his life Because his life is not his life. His life is a gift. Notice in verse 20 he says that light, which is a metaphor for life here, is given. By whom? By God. Even as miserable as his life is, Job's miserable life has been given to him by God. And only God can determine when and if it ends. Friends, so I pray this slows and stops you this morning from considering suicide as a viable option or outlet to whatever pain and hurt and darkness you might be experiencing. Take suicide totally off the table. Life and death are God prerogatives. Job, even in deep misery, knows that. And though death would mean Joey? Joe must wait on God. You see how deep theology springs up in deep suffering? That's why you need to keep studying the Bible, keep pressing in to know God more and more and more because you will need some theological light posts to guide you through life when everything seems completely dark. Quite literally, theology, and not just studying about God, but knowing God, keeps you alive. You understand that? What kept Job from taking his own life? His knowledge of God. Theology is not some kind of spectator sport. Reserved from armchair theologians who ain't never going through nothing. Theology is for deep suffering. Job's deep theology grounded Job from doing devastating things to himself. And waiting on God to deliver him. Perhaps you felt like Job at some point in your life. Maybe at this point in your life. Maybe right now. Vocalizing. Even if just to yourself. Inwardly. I wish. I was dead. Happy things in life can bring in. Hard things in life can bring that. Even seemingly small, comparative things can bring that. A breakup, a, a failed quarter. Not just a tragedy, but but even the fear of being exposed or embarrassed. You, you know, there's this is kind of warning that is going out to parents and teenagers of of these kind of. Schemes that people are, are doing, preying on young people, getting them to send embarrassing photos, and saying, If you don't pay me this money, I'm going to show this photo to everybody. And instead of being embarrassed and exposed, the child kills himself. We, I'd rather die than be ashamed. Right? It's all kinds of things that might be bringing up to your mind, maybe even slightly the notion, even if it's just a whisper at this point. I wish I was dead. Even in your sorrow and desire for death, I pray you'd hold on. I pray you'd give even that desire to die to God, that you entrust Him with your entire life. Or well, maybe you hear Job's words here and you have a different response. Maybe you have the Too often responsible, I think, is the tendency of many of us to be incredibly judgmental when we hear people grieve like this. And we figure, well, I've been through some hard stuff, too. And I don't want to die. Well, that might be true. But guess what? Your personal experience is not the grand sum of human experience. What you've gone through and how you've responded is not indicative of the only way that people respond. I think that's crucially important in relationships. One of the greatest keys to a fruitful marriage, one that I'm slowly learning, is not to hold your spouse to the same standards as you. She might not be built like you. Might have different capacities, different ways he or she grieves. That's important not just for well, marital relationships, that's important for relationships in the church. I mean, as we seek to do life together, as we spend time together and grow together, inevitably we will go through some hard things together. And says, so, "Let me tell you, we will wreck this church if we hold each other to the same standards of expressions of grief as we've had." if we tear others down because they grieve differently than what we think is the right way or religious way or simply our way to respond to hardships. Mm -hmm. Saints, pray for yourselves. Pray for our church that God would give us compassionate hearts that don't jump on people for their genuine expressions of hurt. Rather that he give us hearts to grieve with those who grieve, and to weep with those who weep. Right? This would be an open place and we'd be an open people where others can openly share their pain. And Job closes the chapter doing just that. Continuing to share his pain. Sighing and groaning are his daily food, his bread and his water. The thing that he dreads, that he's always dreaded, God's disfavor and the the subsequent realities of that, they seemingly have come to pass. So that his current lot is what he expresses in verse 26. I'm not at ease. I'm not quiet. I have no rest. I only have trouble. This is a hard chapter. A dark chapter. But this is a needed chapter. It shows us the deep hurt of people. But also the deep love of a Savior. In retrospect, we can look back and see that the day of Job's birth was not darkened nor his life snuffed out at birth, so that Job could live and experience all that God put him through, being trained to trust God, even as he asked, why? What Job could not see, but that we have seen, given the full canon of scripture, is that there was a day that was darkened. Not the day of Job's birth, but the day of Jesus' death. You remember how that day was described? Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 says that from 12 noon to 3 p.m., there was complete darkness over all the land. As Jesus Christ, the blameless, sinless son of God, took upon himself the sins of all those who trusted in him the sins of all those who look not to themselves, but to another to save them. He endured great suffering from distress and abandonment. And in his truly dark day, Jesus, like Job, asked questions. Why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While Job Felt forsaken, Jesus actually was forsaken, absorbing all of God's wrath and dying as a substitute for sinful people like us and like Job. Though Job didn't sin here in this chapter, he still was a sinner and he needed a savior. Jesus' day was darkened as he hung on the cross and died for us. But he was raised three days later, showing that his sacrifice was sufficient payment for our sins. And all those who trust in him will be saved from their sins and from God's wrath and set apart to live with God forever in heaven in eternal bliss. How does this relate to Job here and his wishes that his day of birth would have been darkened? Well, because he could not see that in the wisdom of God, if he had never been born as he wished, if his birthday would have been darkened, then he could never be saved by Jesus' death day of darkness. And friends, to be saved, to live eternally with God is far better than to have never lived. To be saved, to live eternally with God is far better than to have never lived or never suffered. As dark as the days may be, we know that Jesus knows that darkness at an even deeper level. He's experienced that darkness For you and for me. As much as you may want. Your life to end. As much as you may want. To take your own life. Don't. But rather trust the one. Who gave his own life. So that you might have eternal life. That doesn't mean you won't go through pain. That you won't grieve. But it does mean. That you can go through pain. And grieve with hope. Knowing that darkness gives way to light. And knowing that death gives way to life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your your word. It's hard truths. Press them into our souls, we pray. Keep us going with Jesus. We pray this in his name.